Hello and welcome to our latest podcast in these days of social distancing. Today's podcast is a little different because it was actually recorded as a webinar. So if you go and find the resources on our judicial resources page, uh, you'll see in the right-hand side of the front page a link to go to meeting where you can actually watch the presentation as a webcast. Of course, you can also listen to it as you are now as a podcast. You'll find the CoJet certificate at the end of the materials in Hightail. Today's presenter is the Honorable Judge Anna Huberman from the Country Meadows Justice Court. She is the reigning Justice of the Peace of the Year. Uh, she's a frequent presenter and she is the chair of our Judicial Education Committee. Uh, so let's go right to Judge Huberman. Uh, these rules now have been in effect for eight months, uh, but it's still a good time to review them. So slide three is protective orders that did go into effect on January 1st of this year. So the change for rule three was that it changed the, um, the definition of harassment. So harassment, as we know, uh, when applicable to injunctions against harassment, means a series of acts uh, that are directed at a specific person and that would cause a reasonable person to be seriously alarmed, annoyed, uh, or harassed. Um, so the point was it had to be a series of acts. One act in itself was not harassment. But now it adds a second paragraph to the definition saying that one or more acts of sexual violence uh, are considered harassment. So if you get a request for an injunction against harassment, so that means that the, the person who's petitioning for the injunction is not uh, related or is not in, a, in an intimate relationship with the person against whom they're requesting the order, um, if it is an act of sexual violence with one act in itself is sufficient to issue the injunction against harassment. Um, the acts of sexual violence are the ones that are in uh, Title 13, uh, Chapter 14, which is all the sexual crimes. And then additionally, it includes kidnapping, sex trafficking, child prostitution. I think that with the material that you have today, there's an inclusive list of all the crimes that uh, are considered sexual violence that constitute harassment. Rule 14 says that for this type of injunction, there's no filing fee and no fee for service. Rule 20, previously it required the judge to ask if the addresses should be confidential. Those of you who have issued uh, orders of protection uh, do know that there is a little box that we would uh, put the check mark on when we wanted the um, address to remain confidential when, um, and it would be printed on the petition. It would be protected. Um, but now all the addresses that appear on the protective orders are all confidential. So none of them will appear printed on the order. Um, so, as well, well, Rule 20 now says that as a judicial officer, we are the ones 
we need to verify that the residential address or the address and other personal information do not appear on the protective order. Um, so if the, the system itself that we use shouldn't uh, be allowing any of those addresses to come up. But if you want to type something in or you're adding something, it is you as a judicial officer that needs to verify that you are not adding any personal information. Um, and it's really, really important that you because the request for records is public, then somebody could obtain that information by requesting the record, even though it doesn't appear on the order of protection itself. So it's very important that you not verify is this address at 1238 Street your address. We don't want to say that. We don't want to be giving out the phone numbers or the email addresses. Um, now that we're doing all our hearings telephonically, um, I think it's even more, uh, you have to be a little bit more aware of it that you're not repeating these, these addresses because you don't, you may not have the person in front of you to say, you know, look at this and you might feel tempted to read the address just refrain from doing so. And then rule 31 and rule 32, um, the way that service is done on orders protection has now changed. So now it is the duty of the courts to transmit the order protection to the appropriate police agency for service. Justice courts transmit the orders to the constable in the precinct uh, of the address of the defendant. Uh, and they have to do it through the AOC portal. All service must be done on the day that the order was requested, unless there is a good cause or extraordinary circumstance to delay it, and it can be delayed up to 72 hours, not more than that. So the judicial officer should ask the plaintiff uh, make make them aware that they will be served on the day that they are requesting the order of protection. They need time to move out of the home or to get some uh, specific thing in order, then you can delay it up to 72 hours. There should be a box uh, when you issue the order of protection indicating the delay, uh, but not more than 72 hours. Um, even so, the petitioner does leave the court with a copy of the order of protection so just like they did before, so if there is any type of emergency or anything were to happen and they need to call the police before the constable has it served, then um, then they'll have the, the, the copy of the order. And then all orders must be registered nationally. That is something that as judges does not concern us, the staff does that for us. Uh, but it is important to know that because the orders are registered nationally, if we dismiss an order, you need to also be sure that we're doing it through the portal and through the, the correct system because it also has to be removed from that registry through the portal that we use. So it is important that, you know, I know that the, the, there's some people who used to 
can write things on orders of protection or you know, add things that were missing. We can't do that anymore because nothing that is handwritten goes through that portal. So everything needs to be done through the portal. All right. And before we move on, I, I do want to reemphasize on the injunction against harassment. The uh, the act of sexual violence is a form. Thank you. Yeah, that that is a reference to Title Twenty Three, uh, and so that's not very easy to figure out what those are. K. Rodwanski of the AOC did create a list, and that is attached to your materials. All right, so for eviction actions, um, there was uh, another rule change. So Rule 5D was amended, and it says that together with service of the complaint, there has to be attached a copy of the lease and the pertinent addendum, and there has to be assistance to county for all cases that are non-payment of rent. Um, the justice courts, that, that, that when, when this rule petition came about, were concerned about the additional paperwork that would be filed with the court, because a lot of the lease agreements nowadays are 30 pages long when you, when you count the, the, the lease and the addendum. Um, so uh, it was, the, the rule was, the original rule as was proposed was changed to say, that the lease only needs to be attached to the service and it does not need to be filed with the court. But I can tell you now that we've been doing all our hearings telephonically, um, at least for the propers that a lot of times are still including the lease with the complaint, it is very convenient to have that and to have the, the, the accounting. Um, Rule 10 was also changed uh, with this, because disclosure used to include the lease and the accounting as part of the disclosure. Uh, now, since it has to be attached to service, it just mentions that failure to comply uh, with the new subsection, um, the judge may take the appropriate action, which can include um, granting a continuance, excluding the evidence that wasn't disclosed. It could be sanctions of the party. And it says that it could include up to dismissing the complaints of the counterclaim. Uh, normally, we allow them to, to have a continuance so they have time to get the, that information to them. Um, we do have a best practice eviction complaint that doesn't have to technically comply with eviction rules. And um, it, it talks about there which which of the ones uh, of the rules, um, the one rule that would require that we consider the fatal flaw that would require dismissal of the complaint would be the non-disclosure of a subsidized house. Uh, for the rest of them, uh, the best practice indicates that you should give the parties an opportunity to uh, to correct it. All right, so for the Justice Court's Rules of Civil Procedure, uh, there was a change in disclosure. So uh, this also went into effect on January 1st. In 2019, there was a major overhaul of the regular 
civil rules of procedure. And it created three tiers of civil cases. Um, tier one were civil cases under $50,000. And it limited the discovery in, in all the cases, uh, but specifically uh, for those tier one cases. And so uh, because the Justice Court rules had not been amended, it turns out that you were allowed to have much more discovery in under $10,000 than you were for the cases between ten and $50,000 in regular civil. Uh, so it was amended just to create the proportionality uh, to conform the discovery and justice courts to these tier one cases in regular civil. So the new limits are, uh, these are the rules, the 123, 124, 125, and 126. Uh, the depositions are limited to five hours. The interrogatories have been reduced from 40 to five. Uh, the request for production has been reduced from 10 documents items of categories to five. And the request for admissions has been reduced from 25 to 10. But if the parties uh, have a reason uh, for, uh, if there's good cause, the judge may give permission to uh, to allow more discovery than what these rules uh, indicate. So this is something to take into account. We don't really see it that often in justice courts, but once in a while it happens. All right. So this. The criminal rule that changed was the post-conviction relief. So Rule 32 used to be the, the post-conviction relief for all cases, whether it was after a trial, after a plea agreement, and in capital cases. We don't do enough of these Rule 32, so every time you get one, you would have to read through the whole rule all over again and wade through all this information that was not applicable to what we were looking So now they just did away with that old Rule 32 completely. And the new Rule 32 um, is the post-conviction relief after a trial, or if it's a congested probation violation. Um, and then the new rule is 33, which is post-conviction relief after a plea. So it just, that the procedure in itself didn't change um, significantly. It, it's just that now it's in each rule different and it's easier to read and easier to get through. All right, slide seven is small claims. Also on January 1st, uh, we have uh, Steve McMurray is, is joining us today. He was uh, one of the the, 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 well, I guess probably the main person who dealt with the changing of the rules. It was a long process. Um, there was some, we went through a lot of uh, trials and, 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 and I can't think of the word now, but um, certain courts uh, offered to, to, to put it to test some of the new rules and then they were changed. And we are, uh, the final rules are the ones that went into effect on January 1st um, of this year. So small claims are regulated by statute and never had rules of procedure. So by default, the courts were using the civil procedure rule, which made the process more burdensome, 
or there was a need to, if you wanted to do a dismissal, you had to send out a, a notice of dismissal, and it made it really impossible to keep the time standards uh, because we were sending the time standards out for the civil timelines. So uh, if service wasn't accomplished within four months, that, that would be uh, 90 days. Uh, that would be when the, the notice of dismissal would go out and if there was no judgment within 10 months. So right off the bat, that wasn't working because our time standards say that we should conclude the, the, the majority of our small claims within 180 days. And so there was no way to comply with those time standards. Um, we know that most pro tem don't hear small claim cases, but you might. But even if you do not hear small claim cases, you still deal with the small claims on the default side. And you will be finding some of these dismissals in the queue if you sign uh, on EDMS. So now small claims have their own timelines. It's 45 days for service, and if not, the court will automatically dismiss. Uh, 65 days after service, the cases will be dismissed unless a hearing has been set or a default has been requested. And then the courts are 60 days after an answer is filed to set the hearing. And I, uh, I mean, you should, the small claims rules aren't that long and, uh, and you can read them, but I did want to um, highlight the failure to appear uh, that's outlined now in the rules what to do in case of failure to appear. So when both parties fail to appear, the case should be dismissed without prejudice. If the defendant fails to appear, the court will consider plaintiff's evidence and then will sign uh, a judgment uh, or dismiss the case. If the plaintiff fails to appear, the case could be dismissed with or without prejudice or um, a judgment may be entered for the group. All right, slide eight. All right, so those were all the rules that we already dealt with this year. Those are all rules that have been in effect since January 1st. Uh, the next two rules that I'm going to talk about are proposals that are being considered um, with the rules uh, for this year to to go into effect in 2021. So for uh, injunctions against harassment that have family case situation. What happens is that many times in the justice courts we get requests for injunctions against harassment that impact children that are subject to a parenting case or to parenting time orders. For example, Let's say a mother files an injunction against harassment against the father's new girlfriend or the new wife and includes the children in that injunction against harassment. So you could end up with a situation where now the kids aren't allowed to go to dad's house because when we put them on that uh, injunction, even though it's against uh, the girlfriend or the new wife, if the children are part of that injunction, now they're not allowed to go to that house. And so that is essentially uh, changing or affecting those parenting time orders. 
So the original idea was that if we got a case with these types of implications, uh, that we should just transfer it to the Superior Court just like we do with the orders of protection. But the Superior Court judges uh, point out a conflict of law if the case was transferred. Because the legal standard to uphold or to dismiss an injunction against harassment is significantly different than the legal standards required to modify an order for parenting time or legal decision-making time under Title 25, which would occur if the injunction of harassment were to include the children or subject to a family court order. So the remedy in those cases in which the um, there was an injunction would impact the family court case or the or or an order that was already in place. So uh, Judge Williams, Gerald Williams, which is the North Valley Justice of the Peace, and Judge Bruce Cohen, the presiding judge of the family court, um, came together and came up with this proposal. So the proposal is that the limited jurisdiction court judges to just not add minor children as protected party to an injunction against harassment. If doing so uh, does or could impact a family court order or a pending family court action involving the same minor children. Uh, doing, doing it otherwise would require the, uh, if we were to include them, then we as justice of the peace um, would be required to address parenting issues that are related to the case without having the history, without having the background, um, and we don't have the legal authority to resolve family issues anyways, so we shouldn't be getting involved in those. Um, so the same way that we do with the orders of protection that we don't include the children Unless, of course, the children, um, it's indicated that they are the victim of the acts of violence or whatever it is, uh, then if there's an emergency case, uh, we could uh, potentially include them. But the idea that mom or girlfriend or, or you know, dad and, and, and boyfriend, whatever those situations, is to just have those injunctions include those parties and not include And then anything else can be sent to the Superior Court and then the Superior Court judges who have those family cases would be uh, in a better situation to deal with that. Um, the, the link that is on this slide is actually a podcast that was reported with Judge Williams and Judge Cohen uh, talking about this issue. Uh, they explain it much better than I can, and it's a much longer explanation, so uh, you can understand it better. Um, right now, the expectation is that uh, this will uh, probably pass, so it's something that uh, if you listen to the podcast and get a better idea of what is, what is, what's coming, uh, you'll have a better idea once it starts in January of 21. Um, so in slide nine, 
So this is uh, also a proposal uh, for the rule change to determine what happens when both parties fail to appear uh, to um, hearing in an order of protection or an injunction against harassing case. We actually, um, you know, each, each one of us do what we do in these cases. Uh, and what was really surprising at some point is to find out that we weren't all on the same page, that everybody was doing it differently. Um, so some judges were using the regular civil standard, that if the plaintiff failed to appear, they are considered to not be prosecuting the case, and the case was dismissed. And they were doing that even though the defendant also failed to appear. Uh, but other judges were keeping it in place um, if the defendant um, if the defendant didn't appear. So if both parties failed to appear, even so, those uh, protective orders will not be dismissed. Um, that some of them said it was out of concern uh, for the safety of the plaintiff. Uh, or the notion that the parties could have agreed maybe not to fight the case and just decided not to come and not let the courts know. So this proposed rule change actually does not take a position. Uh, it's just asking the Supreme Court to make a decision. Uh, so that way there's at least some kind of standardization um, in all the courts that we're all doing the same thing. So that the outcome doesn't change if you're in court A or in court B. Um, I do know that in the comments to the rules that CIPIC, uh, which is the Commission um, on Domestic Violence, they actually proposed uh, keeping the, um, the protective order in place if both parties fail to uh, But we'll just have to wait and see what is ends up being decided on. All right, so slide 10. The legislative session this year was cut short because of the COVID uh, crisis. So there's been really very little new legislation that impacts the justice courts this year. Before, uh, we had a few bills. Before we move on to that, there was a typo in slide seven. If the plaintiff fails to appear, then you either dismiss without prejudice, with prejudice, or, or uh, grant judgment to the defendant, not to the plaintiff. Oh, right. Um, okay, so like I said this year, because of the, the COVID situation, we did not, um, there was very few um, new, new laws, which built, which makes it easier uh, this year, that so we don't have that many that we have to deal with. Um, we did have some bills that we were watching, including one that would allow setting aside convictions for moving violations. Uh, we'll have to see if that comes back next year. That do affect the justice court. So the first one is this um, Senate Bill 1441 on protective orders. This goes into effect on the 25th, so two weeks from now. Uh, this bill uh, goes into effect. And what it, what it says is that while the protective order is in effect, if a party has been granted the exclusive use of the house 
and subsequently moves out of the house, the party must file a notice in writing with the court within five days of moving out of the residence. And then after receiving the notification from the plaintiff, the court will provide that notice to the defendant, letting them know that the plaintiff has moved out and that the defendant has a right to request a hearing uh, pursuant to such an item uh, of the section. So for judicial officers, it is important to note that we should tell the plaintiffs that have exclusive use of the home that they must advise the court if they move out. Uh, so that is something new that will be need to be added onto the script uh, for protective orders. But if you grant exclusive use, um, I've already started telling them that they need to let the court know if they move out because even the ones that we're granting now, um, if they move out um, after the 25th, the law uh, will apply to them. So I've already been telling them. Uh, and then if the exclusive use of the home is awarded to the party, the court upon written request of uh, the other party may hold additional hearings at any time if there is a change in circumstances related to the primary residence. Um, so again, just to know and just to, to, to understand that we may end up holding more hearings during the life cycle of the order of protection. So before we would only hold the one hearing if there was an objection to the order of protection, and then that was the end of it for us. But now, uh, because of this new uh, statute, there is a possibility that we may end up hearing you know, six months later or any time during the dependency of that protective order, um, another hearing as to the exclusive use. All right, slide 12. This one, I, you know, I don't know how much we'll actually see it, but I just thought it was cute. Um, the, this does create new civil traffic violations. So personal delivery devices have, were already contemplated in statute, uh, but they, the statute has now been uh, modified. The changes go into effect on September 1st. Um, so the new definition uh, changes the definition, uh, the new bill, I'm sorry, changes the definition um, of personal delivery devices. So they can be larger than what they were before. It does allow them now to go faster and they can travel on the shoulder of a highway. And they get into an accident, I guess we will see those in the justice courts since we do have the jurisdiction over the highway. Um, there's the, the, the bill includes a lot of regulations and whatnot with, uh, um, with, with all these uh, devices. Uh, operate, they can't carry hazardous material, they have to carry liability insurance, and they have to have lights. Uh, those are the major, um, the, 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 the outline to understand on that. And then starting on January 1st of next year, um, this House Bill 2230 goes into effect, which allows that in a if you get a traffic ticket, 
that has been filed in the incorrect precinct and it's on the boundary of the precinct where it occurred, then the court can automatically transfer that case to the correct um, to the correct justice court. Uh, because when a court does not have jurisdiction, they can't do anything on a case. Uh, currently, if the case has been filed in the wrong jurisdiction, the only remedy would be to dismiss. We do have a best practice on this, which indicates that the state should be given an opportunity to make an offer of proof um, that the case should not be dismissed. Uh, for example, um, that they could say that part of the offense occurred in the jurisdiction of the justice court where the case was filed. Uh, but if the state can't or chooses not to make an offer of proof, the case has to be dismissed. Um, it's the responsibility of the state to file the cases, and it is not the responsibility of the courts to grant defects in the state's cases. Um, and self-represented litigants should be uh, prejudiced because they're not aware of the rules uh, that govern jurisdiction. Uh, but with this new statute, if it is clear that if it's on the boundary, the court now does have the authority to transfer the case. An argument could be made that the court should still give the state an opportunity to make that offer of proof that part of the offense was committed in the precinct where the case was filed. Um, because for the, the same criteria, um, you know, if, if, if in my case, for example, uh, if someone was stopped uh, north of Northern and they were going northbound on 101, they had to have been coming from the Country Meadows Justice Court. Uh, so the state, uh, if they want to keep it in the Country Meadows Justice Court, maybe we should be given an offer an opportunity to show uh, that part of the offense was committed there or not. But now uh, we can transfer it. The statute just says that on the boundary of the precinct, of course, there's no definition as to what the boundary means. Um, you know, I get cases a lot of times that Northern is the, the, the avenue that divides my precinct from Arrowhead precinct. And I get a lot of uh, tickets that come from some of the bars that are on the north side of Northern. Um, I Those are clearly on the boundary. Those are cases that I could automatically transfer to the other court. If they're a mile out, is that on the boundary? If they're half a mile out, um, I, I, I suspect that it will just be a matter of interpretation of each court, what we consider on the boundary. Um, All right, so slide 14. So this section takes a look at some of the cases from 2020 that impact justice courts. Um, so slide 15 and uh, this case, uh, Secure Ventures versus Burlach. Um, this case was decided by the Court of Appeals so in 1984, the statute 12, 1173.01 was added uh, with additional definitions of forceful detainment. And when they added that, uh, that statute or that, that part of the statute, it indicated that the forcible detainer had to be filed with the clerk of the Superior Court. Even though the statute said that, um, 
the the judges court continued to hear post trustee sale eviction as before and the, the statute was never challenged. So in this case, the Superior Court judge ruled that the Justice Court lacked jurisdiction and the Court of Appeals ended up affirming um, that Justice Courts do not have jurisdiction in post-trustee sales um, eviction. It's interesting because the ruling itself recognizes that it goes against years of common practice in Arizona. But to be honest, I can't say that I'll miss those cases. Um, the attorneys should no longer be filing these cases in justice courts, and the staff should hopefully catch them in time at the time of filing. But be aware, um, if it gets through and you are hearing a case that is um, based on a trustee sale, that you have no longer have jurisdiction to hear that case, and that case uh, should be sent to the Superior Court. And, uh, okay, so this is another eviction case. Um, it's, um, this one talks about uh, that when we have a non-final order for possession, uh, that does not include attorney's fees, that the case is not ready to be appealed. So this is um, AU Enterprises versus Edwards. Um, and I think this is just a cautionary advice to judges. Uh, in this case, there was a judgment that awarded possession to the plaintiff, but it indicated that the attorney's fees would be proved by affidavit. That affidavit was filed a week later. The defendant appealed, and a week after that, filed an objection to the attorney's fees. And then a month later, the court awarded the attorney's fees and deferred awarding the cost until the final judgment was So the statute contemplates that eviction actions should include attorney's fees. And Rule 13 of the Rules of Procedure for Eviction Actions um, say the, the, the same thing. And because only final judgments are appealable, the appeal was considered premature since although it indicated that the plaintiff was entitled to a justice, they were not awarded until later. So the only way, uh, the, the, the court recognizes that the only way that a can get to stay on an eviction is by appealing. So, if the judge orders the writ before the judgment is final, the defendant loses that ability to uh, appeal and loses the ability to stay. Um, so uh, it, it ends up that, that it would be an unavailable um it, it would be an unavailable remedy for the defendant, or uh, for the tenant in this case, um, if, because they were not able to appeal because the judgment had not been finalized. Uh, in this case, the court indicated that it was not willing to deviate from prior case law that required the awarding of attorney's fees for the judgment to be final. And so it specifically says the language um, of the, of the, um, 
from, from the Court of Appeals that trial judges should considering issues, consider issuing immediately enforceable judgments of possession only in conjunction with final orders. So uh, that's why I said at the beginning this is more of a cautionary uh, indication for judges that you should not be um, awarding writs in judgments that have not been finalized because then the tenant loses their ability to stay uh, in the property through the appeal process. All right, uh, slide 18. This is a very interesting case because it talks about what counterclaim can an eviction defendant assert. This case is Iverson versus Navan, and it is a Court of Appeals case from this year. So this is a case where, I'll explain it a little bit, the rent was $1,400 a month, and the parties discussed but never signed a purchase agreement. So after the first three months, the tenants started paying an additional $300 in rent. They paid that for several years, and then at some point, uh, stopped paying the extra 300 and went back to the uh, monthly rent. Eventually, an eviction was filed for non-payment, and the case was moved to the Superior Court because of the counterclaim on things. Uh, there were several motions and hearings. Eventually, the tenants moved out, but the case continued forward because it was still resolving uh, a lot of these outstanding issues. So, um, 331365, uh, that, that statute indicates that an action for possession based on non-payment of rent or in an action for rent where the tenant is in possession, if the landlord is not in compliance with the rental agreement or this chapter, the tenant may counterclaim for any amount which he may recover under the rental agreement or this chapter. The, the uh, rule for eviction actions number eight is the one that says that unless specifically provided for by statute, no counterclaims, cross-claims, or third-party claims may be filed in eviction actions. And any counterclaim filed without statutory basis shall be stricken and dismissed without prejudice. Because evictions are a summary, speedy um, process for obtaining possession, the only issue that really should be decided is the right of possession. So there can be subsequent cases um, between the parties where they can fully explore other issues. Um, we see this a lot, you know, tenants uh, routinely file, file counterclaims that are not statutory. Um, and normally the landlord will ask us to just automatically dismiss those counterclaims. So in this case, there was a counterclaim one that alleged breach of the purchase, of, uh, of the purchase option. That one was not statutory, so that counterclaim is not considered a valid counterclaim. The counterclaim two was uh, the a breach of the covenant of good faith of their dealing. The court said that they weren't sure what that referred to, but since it wasn't awarded or appealed, they didn't consider that one. Counterclaim three now, that one referred to the additional $300 that they paid every month for a few years. And they considered that that was prepaid 
it runs. So this is a counterclaim that can go forward because it is statutory. Then, okay, slide 19. So counterclaim four, this is the one that's, that's more uh, important to, to us right now. Counterclaim four was failure to maintain fit and habitable premises in violation of 33.13.24. And the court said that the court did have jurisdiction to hear this counterclaim. So, the first part of the counterclaim was that they failed to repair a roof and pulleys uh, that they said were essential services and that the tenant should be able to recover damages based on the diminution in fair rental value. Um, so, in this case, the counterclaim for what they considered essential services the Court of Appeals said that the tenant was able to recover damages and was able to get diminution of fair rental value. The other claim, which is in slide 20, they claimed also as a failure to maintain uh, claims for yard and pool maintenance. But the Court of Appeals in this in this uh, to this category said that those weren't essential services. And so the remedy in 1364 was not applicable in this case. Because they were just regular non-compliance um, that affected health and safety, they needed to provide the landlord in writing with a notice uh, to make the repairs or to, to perform the maintenance. So in this case, no notice was given and this counterclaim failed. So, after all that, the takeaway simply is that the court allowed for the diminution of rent without written notice if it was an essential service. So if the tenant shows up, for example, uh, that they've been living without air conditioning for two months, um, from what this opinion states, and this is from the Court of Appeals, uh, that the written notice was not necessary if it was an essential services and what they were trying to obtain is the diminution of the fair rental value. But if it was for regular repairs uh, and there was no notice, then those, that counterclaim Um, I thought that this is an interesting case that you have the, the, the site there to read the whole case if you want. Um, I, I think it, it clarifies a lot of the things that we go through with evictions. Um, so I, I, I thought that this case was very, very interesting. Um, the, the case on, on slide um, 21, um, this is a lower court appeals. So this was the judge of the superior court. Um, and this is a case of contracting without a license. Uh, in this case, this is uh, State of Arizona versus Rodrigo Placencia. In this case, the defendant placed an ad that was answered um, and he got hired uh, to do work for the, uh, for the victim. 
he personally did very little or no work at all. But the court said that that wasn't necessary to sustain a conviction. Um, the language here was it was sufficient that there was substantial evidence that defendant for conversation undertook or offered to undertake a purported to have the capacity to undertake a bit or response or request for qualification or does request proposal for the construction service or does himself abide to others. So in this case, they said that the fact that the defendant himself didn't do much of the work uh, still made him guilty of contracting without a license. The other issue, which I, I guess we could call it interesting, uh, was a discussion as to what constitutes a structure. And the court in this case concluded that a structure is something different than a building because the statute lists both separately. And so the court said they looked at the common meaning and they considered that a patio constructed with big brick pavers is a structure and falls within the meaning of the statute. I don't know how I don't know how that comes across as, as common meaning, um, but in this case, they found that uh, for, for the restitution portion of it, uh, that the patio was considered a structure um, and was included. All right, so slide 23 is a Batson challenge. This case is State versus Porter. Um, I bring this one up because, uh, first of all, it's a case that came from a, low, a, a limited jurisdiction court. And at this time of uh, so much recognition, we should always be aware and be very sensitive to Batson challenges. So the history of Batson in 1986, the Supreme Court, in the case Batson versus Kentucky, made it illegal for prosecutors to exclude prospective jurors because of race. But that ruling has largely gone unimportant. The New Yorker reported in 2015 that in the years since the ruling, courts have accepted the flimsiest excuses for striking black jurors and that prosecutors have in turn trained subordinates how to strike black jurors without a judicial review. A 2010 report by the Equal Justice Initiative documented cases in which courts upheld prosecutors' dismissal of jurors because of allegedly race-neutral factors such as affiliation with a historically black college, a son in an interracial marriage, living in a black majority neighborhood, or that a juror shunned and died. Um, in several studies, it was shown that prosecutors strike black jurors over 50% of the time, two or three times as much as white or non-black jurors. I was maybe more saddened than surprised to read a study that in the 32 years since Batson, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth District, uh, that includes Mississippi, Texas, and Louisiana, has only upheld Batson twice out of hundreds of challenges. So um, in this case, the, the, what the Court of Appeals held was that uh, the failure of the trial court to make any findings in this 
considered concerning the prospective juror's demeanor precluded the Court of Appeals from determining whether prosecutors' preemptory strike was pretext or race discrimination and thus required police. And then when confronted with a pattern of strike against minority jurors, trial courts must determine expressly that the racially disproportionate impact of the pattern is justified by a genuine, not pretextual race neutral. And the court goes on to say that although the states do have the flexibility in formulating appropriate procedures to comply with Batson, Arizona has not elaborated a basic framework. Uh, but there is the three-step analysis, which is um, uh, which should be followed. So in step one, the person who opposes the strike uh, must make a prima facie case of racial discrimination. It could just be showing a pattern of strike against minority jurors. Step two, then the burden switches to the prosecution um, or to the proponent of the, of, the, of the strike to offer a race-neutral explanation. Now, any race-neutral reason is sufficient uh, to get through this second step, even if it's a silly reason. And then step three is, if a race-neutral explanation is tendered, then the trial court must decide whether the opponent of the strike has proved purposeful racial discrimination. So citing this other case, Kong versus Ulliamo, the trial court, the Court of Appeals said that the trial court must consider the prosecutor's race-neutral explanation in light of all the relevant facts and circumstances and in light of the arguments of the party. And if the prosecutor's demeanor is often the best evidence. Uh, the reason for each particular strike cannot be viewed in isolation. Comparison of stricken and non-stricken jurors as well as comparison as to how the prosecutor questioned those jurors may be relevant. The pattern of strikes may also be relevant. And in this case particularly, they're saying that the trial court did not make any findings concerning the prosecutor's demeanor. And even though the prosecutor did tender uh, a, a race-neutral justification, uh, it, the court did not make a determination uh, that they were uh, credible in the face of the pattern. And so uh, that is why they, they, they had to um, uphold the back vaccine challenge. So in this case, Porter is black. The state struck jurors 2 and 20, the only two black jurors in the panel, uh, and then they tried to strike for cause juror number 10, which was the only other person of color on the panel. Uh, and so when it says that there cannot be a more stark pattern for Batson purposes, then when the state attempts to remove all minorities from the jurors. Um, and again, they make no finding as to the jurors' demeanor, um, because in this case, um, the state tried to say uh, that, uh, that what they answered to the question um, that they weren't um, that they weren't sure that they could be fair and impartial, but because the trial court didn't make any specific findings as to the jurors' demeanor, the court of appeal had no basis 
to um, uphold the, the, the strike. Uh, and then 525, um, I, 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 I mean, I, this phrase I thought was, uh, were we to defer to implicit findings that uphold the pattern of challenges to every minority juror, we would tacitly contribute to the perception that Batson is merely aspirational and can easily be sidestepped. We refuse to do so. In Batson, the United States Supreme Court set out to eliminate racial discrimination by the government, and it has unwaveringly confirmed its seriousness about that they never said. Um, so I, I just thought that this was very timely. Uh, this actually, I think this uh, this ruling came out um, before the, the, the protests and, and that started this year, um, but it's still uh, very timely and something to consider. And I, I would I would venture to say that I think it's something that will become, uh, probably we'll be hearing more Batson challenges than we normally do, um, and it's something that we should all uh, really be aware of. And I think the important part here, um, the outside of the of the generalizations that the that the rules make um, as to what the what the ideal is in, in Batson um, is that it is important for the judges to make findings. Uh, they have to make a finding as to the demeanor of the prosecutor, as to the demeanor of the jurors. Um, it is not sufficient that the prosecutor says, um, I found that uh, the juror uh, was uh, a little bit uncertain when he was answering the question, but if the judge doesn't say, I observed the juror and I saw this or that, um, then the challenge in itself uh, really can't go forward because there's nothing on the record to indicate what it was that the judge considered. So I think that this is very timely and very important. And then slide 26, um, this was a special action. I know that today we weren't supposed to be talking about evictions because we have a lot of other podcasts and a lot of other things that are going on with eviction. And we, uh, we just never get away from eviction, especially in this year. So the governor's order, um, the, the one that stayed the execution of the writs of restitution, this was brought up by special action to the to the Superior Court judge. Um, and uh, in, in this case, um, this is Gregory Real Estate versus management versus uh, Myron Keegan. Um, it was a special action complaint in the form of a mandamus. The appellant argued that the um, executive order is unconstitutional essentially for three reasons. One, they said it was because it was issued by the governor without valid authority. Two, because it violates the doctrine of separation of powers in Article 3 of the Arizona Constitution. And three, because it constitutes a taking of private property in violation of Article 2, Section 17 of the Constitution. So the ruling held that Governor Ducey's declaration of a public health emergency is justified under Arizona law. And that there was a rational basis 
of mitigating the spread of COVID-19 by promoting both physical distancing through the delay of evictions, and that supports the executive order. So the first reason, which was that the, the governor didn't have the authority uh, to uh, issue this executive order, um, was was uh, found lacking. Um, the ruling also held that it doesn't violate the What we're saying is that the executive order only directs the officers conducting the executive function, um, which would be the constable. It doesn't direct, it doesn't limit the judicial branch in any way, and it does allow um, for a judicial order allowing enforcement in the interest of justice. So even though the executive order stays the evictions, it doesn't allow the judges to overrule the state if they think there's an interest of justice. So for these reasons, uh, the judge found uh, that it did not violate the separation of powers with the judiciary. And then the second problem of that was with the legislative branch. Uh, but to this, the court um, indicates that there's four reasons why it doesn't violate the separation of power with the legislative branch. Uh, first of all, is they cite this case uh, from 1919 um, from the city of Globe, and it says that court said that the executive may issue temporary and administrative measures to protect the public health during a pandemic. The second reason is that the legislature has conferred police power to the executive branch uh, to promulgate temporary rules and regulations in times of emergency. That law is um, 26.301 that defines what a state of emergency is. And then one of the arguments that was made was that uh, the governor should have convened a legislative session. And although the judge uh, does recognize that the governor did not convene a special legislative session, um, he does mention that the legislature did come back to the session. And even though for a few days, the executive order was already in effect uh, when the, the they went back into session and they didn't act on it. So the legislature uh, did not show any indication that they were interested in changing that executive order. And then the fourth reason was that the limitations in the executive order are temporary and not permanent. Um, well, the fourth one, it doesn't create taking either actual or regulatory, it doesn't violate Article 2. Um, I have seen that in some of the motions to compel, some of these same arguments are coming up, um, but they, they really haven't been arguing them much, and I uh, I just haven't been granting them. Uh, but now we have the, the, the ruling from the, the Court of... Uh, our Court of Appeals, which is the Superior Court. All right, slide 28 is just uh, a title to criminal law update. I haven't included any criminal cases in this update uh, since um, the city of Scottsdale Judge Blake, together with our very own Charles Adormedo, recorded a podcast on criminal law updates back in April. And here is the site uh, where you can listen to that. Um, you didn't get uh, really in depth with criminal cases. All right, so then 
just this is just kind of miscellaneous uh, topics that are coming up. So slide 30. 2020. Coronavirus hit the country in January and in Arizona in March. So while people were home watching Tiger King, uh, we were coming up with plans to keep the courts functioning while keeping ourselves, our staff, and our stakeholders safe. With everything going on and the uneven response to the virus in the country, I have to give a lot of credit to our judicial branch that took the reins uh, very firmly on this topic, very swiftly. They acted very, very early on. Uh, when this first started in March, we were all concerned about court operations in the time of COVID. Uh, and most important was that although the doors to the courthouse were, and for the most part now, uh, remain closed, the courts themselves are still open, and the judicial process does not stop. Uh, but the courts must function consistent with public health. March was stressful to say the least, and a lot of court operations teams were reaching home. While we came up with plans to process cases, dealing with staff, uh, dealing with the virus in general. I just, you know, when I read back through all these orders preparing for this uh, for this today, uh, first of all, it seems like so long ago when it happened, and this was just only five months ago. But the first emergency orders only contemplated delays in court proceedings through March 30th. Um, I guess at that time we were so hopeful that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but now it's been more than four months and we've been dealing with this. It did look at some point like June was going to bring back uh, something more in tune with what we were used to. Uh, but the spike in infection is derailed that So slide 31. Um, so, like I said previously, the Supreme Court added, acted early, even before the governor, and the Superior Court presiding judge followed. There have been several orders, and I don't want to go through the evolution of all the orders in this one. But I'll just summarize the important points of the orders that are currently in effect. I do want to say that recently our education officer reported um, and posted a podcast with Margaret Downey and Keith Russell on current issues in ethics. That can also be found in ITO or the other podcast that I've been talking about. Um, in that presentation, Margaret Downey uh, lays out why these administrative orders are not just, as she calls them, aspirational, but they must be complied with both by all our elected judges and our appointed judges and our protests. Um, it's a great presentation and I encourage you if you haven't listened to do so. So the administrative orders contemplate four phases. Actually, I guess five phases because uh, the first phase was phase zero. Um, we stayed in phase zero up until June, June uh, I thought it was June 1st, but uh, the podcast with uh, uh, Margaret Downey said that on June 15th, we moved into phase one. Um, but on June 1st, face masks became a requirement for the public and for staff. In-person contacts are still to be limited. 
when the courts did move into phase one, a lot of judges took this as a reopening and that we were going back to doing business as we used to. Uh, but that's not the case. The orders are very clear that the courts are encouraged to use technology, teleconferencing or video conferencing, and to avoid the litigants coming to the courthouse. To avoid exposure to the virus, judges deliberately grant continuances and make accommodations. For example, for people who are at higher risk for complications from the virus. In reality, it is uh, security that's controlling who enters the building, uh, and they may occasionally um, ask the court uh, for authorization to let someone in. Anyone who requests emergency orders, that includes orders of protection, objections to garnishment, um, anything that requires an emergency relief, those should be allowed into the building. Uh, the order specifically authorized that ex-party and contested protective order hearings uh, to be done electronically. And um, we also do allow into the building uh, people who are coming to the court to pay in cash um, because they have no other way to make their payments. Um, if the judge does set a proceeding to be done in person at the court, it should be limited only to the attorney, the parties, the victim, the witnesses, jurors, or personnel, and other necessary persons. No more than 30 people can be uh, allowed, and they must abide by social distancing guidelines. The courtrooms and other areas um, in the building should be marked to show where people are allowed to sit. Um, presiding judges are also authorized to suspend local rules, and specifically the following rules are suspended through, um, through December 31st. So there's a, there's a, the criminal rules establish that anybody who's uh, more than 100 miles from the court, uh, they were allowed to do a telephonic plea. That rule is suspended, and now anybody can do a telephonic plea, um, even if they're within the 100-mile radius. Uh, the courts uh, may establish procedures to collect fingerprints or to establish the defendant's identity. Uh, we were at some point expecting the Supreme Court uh, to come up with some plan for our fingerprints. That hasn't happened, and, and the courts are kind of muddling through this um, with their own procedures and, and in a way that they can do it. Um, in my court, for example, my public defender actually meets in person with her clients. Uh, once a week, she goes to her office downtown and has the defendants come in. She has them sign all the paperwork and fix their fingerprints to it, um, and then they don't come into my court, they just do everything on the phone. Um, I don't know, you, you have to wonder if the fingerprint collected outside of the presence of the court actually establishes ID, because, you know, at some point if someone's going to check that fingerprint, that it matches the, the record to the prior, but if we didn't see the person who put that fingerprint there, uh, that itself might be an issue. Um, but, you know, everybody's doing the best that we can or with, with, with how we can do it. Um, I think that in, in the case of the public defenders collecting the fingerprints, I guess she turns herself into a witness 
if the prior convictions ever question. Uh, we'll see what happens. The private attorneys are mostly coming with their clients to do a change of plea in person. Uh, we're not sending one to jail yet, uh, so we have been setting telephonic review hearing uh, for defendants to call in uh, 90 days out from the date of sentencing uh, to establish um, when they might turn themselves in for sentencing at that point. We would have them come in, they would have to give the fingerprint on the uh, on the confinement order. That would be another opportunity to collect fingerprints if needed. Um, and if when the 90 days are up, if the jail is still not safe, um, we would just set another review hearing. I can say that uh, in that podcast, Doug Russell did say that about 40% uh, currently, it's considered that 40% of the population in the jail has either tested positive or is suspected to be positive for COVID. So the situation in the jail is still pretty um, grim and I don't think that we will be sending um, anyone to jail anytime soon. Uh, we do have uh, coming up, uh, We'll talk about um, home detention, which will help alleviate part of the problem. Um, the, the sheriff's office downtown that does collect the tenant, um, that office is still open and they're functioning, um, so you can still send defendants to the detention. Um, other rules that have been suspended are the calculation of time that require proceedings to, help, to be held within a certain time. Um, that, was, that time period has been excluded from March 18th, right now through September 30th. Uh, this includes uh, Rule 8 for speed trial, and it includes uh, the timeline for eviction. Um, the presiding judge may further exclude past that day. We'll see what happens. Um, it's important to note that cases with in-custody defendants, um, those timelines are not excluded. Uh, Domestic violence cases, uh, protective proceedings, and injunctions are not excluded, and anything needed to grant emergency relief also not excluded. And then the last executive order, specifically not excluded, is the five days for the issuance of the writ and then eviction action. So even though the time, um, the timelines have been suspended in many cases. Once there's an eviction judgment, that eviction writ um, has to be within the five days of the judgment, like it always was. Uh, when the courts moved up into phase one, uh, jury trials would have been allowed, and the courts were trying to come up with plans on how to conduct the jury trials, but the exceptions uh, got really out of control in Arizona, and jury trials were again suspended. Um, I know that there were such start trials uh, last week, I haven't heard, I don't know uh, what happened. They were doing one case test to start off to see how it went. Um, the, the administrative order specifically does say that jury selection can be done by an alternate, um, by, by an alternative to in-person. So specifically, the jury selection can be done um, remotely, doesn't have to be um, in-person as per the administrative order and then the strikes limited jurisdiction courts have been reduced to one i think with the criteria of bringing in less 
time. Potential jurors being able to deal with smaller problems. Slide 32. Uh, so the, we've all been working with virtual courtrooms. Um, these are just um, audio. They don't have any video. Uh, but they work as a courtroom in the sense that everybody calls in and everybody is connected at the same time into that courtroom. Um, some of the pros of the virtual courtroom have been that the, uh, the litigants don't have to travel. Uh, it allows for last-minute appearances. No need to find a babysitter. No need to take time off work. Uh, the cons uh, have been that Sometimes not being able to see the judge uh, for certain defendants doesn't carry the same uh, seriousness of the proceeding. Um, sometimes they don't know who they're talking to. They don't know the person judge. The background noise. Um, there's no visual cues, so people don't know when to be quiet. They don't know when to stop talking. Um, it gets very difficult sometimes to stop people. Um, they don't know who the question is for. People don't know who you're talking to when you're asking a question. Um, and then you can't tell what they heard or what they didn't hear, what they understood, what they didn't understand. Uh, with a video platform, I would say the pros are the same as with a virtual courtroom. Plus, um, being able to see the witnesses, I think, is, uh, is, is really important. Uh, it's better for the visual cues. You can tell that the person actually left the room they're still there. Um, the cons has to do with the technology. Uh, most of our uh, litigants just have phones. They don't have uh, computers, so it's hard to do a video because they don't have a large screen where to do it. Uh, you know, since this started, we've all been wondering if the fact that this is, you know, we're doing virtual court. Uh, at the beginning, it seemed that we were bringing in more people uh, to the court. Uh, at this point, I don't know if that's true. I would venture to say that in the eviction cases, anybody who has a potential defense, anybody who hasn't paid their rent because they have been affected by COVID, uh, most definitely uh, has been appearing in higher numbers than they used to appear for regular evictions. Uh, but I think that I'm getting even less appearances on my criminal arraignment than I used to. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to know, it's hard to know going forward um, if this will be uh, something that the courts uh, will continue to do. You know, has it been useful um, and how, how the defendant... And I think that if we go forward with this, uh, maybe then the, the police officers stop them and give them the ticket uh, with the allies and telling people that they have to call. And I think if people understand that they uh, but they just have to call and don't have to come. Uh, that might be helpful. We'll have to see. Uh, the biggest challenge, of course, is how do we going to do the jury trials? Um, nationally, there's been some anecdotal stories on jury trials. Um, there's been what I heard done over video conference. There's been full trials done over video conferences. But the experiences have been very few. Um, to know how successful they really are. A court in Wisconsin did hold a socially distant trial um, where actually some of the people, I think, um, well, maybe they were all in the courtroom. I don't know. They were all socially distant. Everybody, they're six feet apart and masks. And, and still, to 
of the clerks uh, got infected with coronavirus. So it's very hard to know how safe any of this is. And then the other question is, you know, who would be willing to serve if trials, trials do come back? Um, moms, you know, will, will they feel comfortable coming? People who have kids in school, um, or, you know, doing school from home. Will only the people who aren't scared of the virus be the ones that are showing up? You know, will our elderly folks not show up because they're, they're more at risk? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think that, you know, I personally don't think that there's a great rush. We don't do that many trials in the first place. Um, and I, you know, our dependents are out of custody. We don't have the rush that your report has, you know, dealing with, with jury trials. Um, but we do have a backlog of cases, and that is something that, that we're going to have to we'll have to consider. Um, all right, Charles, slide thirty-three is yours. All right, some of you may have heard that the uh, County Board of Supervisors has. Uh, approved home detention. Some of you might say finally approved home detention because uh, a lot of other counties and most of the cities have been doing it for years. Uh, there is no start date yet. We're, we are working through the county attorney's office to go ahead and set that up. Uh, some things to keep in mind is that it must be in the plea. It will probably be optional for the judge to allow home detention. Uh, and, and again, that would be in the plea. Uh, for the time being, this, this is the County Board of Supervisors approved it for a pilot project. So for the time being, it's going to be only for DUI. Remember, the 20% uh, must be in custody. Pursuant to statute, it's the first 20% that must be in custody. However, Supreme Court Administrative Order 2020-83 allows the home detention to be served first. Uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, I d have attached a presentation from the county attorney's office that does go through the statutory framework for home detention. I've also attached a handy-dandy chart that does list all of the mandatory minimums for DUI, including home detention, uh, and some statutory and case sites below with respect to work release and home detention. However, remember there is still no work release. Uh, we, we can't allow uh, prisoners to go out and either infect people in the workplace or get infected in the workplace and bring it into jail. Uh, that would be uh, create quite a spreading event. So uh, we may uh, do a best practice on home detention and if we do a best practice on home detention, we will probably also do a podcast. Uh, there will be more information to follow once there is more information to tell you, like when the program does start. Judge? All right, and then lastly, eviction. Like I said, keeps coming back. It's all been about evictions. Um, the latest uh, Supreme Court administrative order, there were two of them, 105 and 119. Uh, those were related to the interpretation of the governor's executive orders. Um, a lot of it was um, was just based on the best practices that we were doing here in Maricopa County. Um, and then 119 came out when the new executive order came out, which um, continued 
the day of, uh, of, I guess everyone's calling their moratorium on evictions through October. Um, but what it does say is that any pleading, and it does say here specifically, not only an eviction, but in civil and small claim cases for non-payment of rent uh, between the periods of March 27th to July 25th. So these dates are the dates of the CARES Act. The, the, the CARES Act was enacted on March 27th of this year, and it expired on July 25th of this year. So in the initial pleading, there has to be an attestation uh, that the, the property was not and is not covered under the CARES Act. You know, it, it, it's part of the uh, eviction now, the attorneys have included it into their complaint. Uh, so it's normally there, anybody who files on the forms that are provided by the Justice Court, we're giving them the extra um, form to attach to the complaint with the attestation. But what's really important here to remember is that all civil or small claims cases, and these may come next year, if someone decides to file a civil claim for outstanding rent or for damages um, in, the, in the property, and they do that through a civil or small claim, we need to have that attestation on those cases also. Uh, because anything that was covered by the CARES Act uh, from March uh, 27th to July 25th cannot accrue late fees or any other type of fee, just the rent. So that is really important, it's just something that, um, that we need to take into account. And that was the end. You want me to take this one, the governor's order, the president's order? Um, I, the president's order um, just talks about um, trying to find funds to help people with um, with, with money to help pay uh, eviction prevention, and um, it doesn't do anything else. It doesn't extend the moratorium. It doesn't affect anything else. So I guess uh, there's no other questions. I'm going to unmute everybody. Um, if I if I've muted you, then you're unmuted. So we do have a couple minutes for questions. Hi, Anna. This is John Peck. Oh, hi, John. Hi. I, I have a question uh, in terms of challenges. I've been thinking a lot about how do we do the evidentiary presentation and make clear that everybody has the same copies of everything that they're looking at. It's so far. So, you know, whatever way that they've been doing trials, um, and, and I know that they did this in the Avapai, was it, or Mojave? Mojave County did a trial um, on video, and what they did is that the people were in the courtroom itself. Not in the courtroom, in the courthouse. So they were remote in the sense that they were all on the video, but they were in their homes, they were in the building. Uh, so I think that way you can at least make sure that everybody gets a copy 
of, of the exhibit because you would be handing it out to them um, wherever they are in the building. Um, but that's a good point. I mean, I, to me personally, I think there's just so many, so many issues uh, with holding um, in-person drink trials that I just don't find doing them. I mean, but I will also say that you know all of us as judges have used the the setting of a jury trial or the threat of a jury trial um, as a way to get cases moving and to get cases resolved. And so not being able to set jury trial um, doesn't been helping because uh, the cases just get continued. Um, so I'm also concerned as to you know what's going to happen with the backlog at some point when everything. Uh, comes, but I just, I just don't, I just don't think there's a safe way to do it. I don't know how we can do deliberations. I don't know. I mean, we could do the jury selection, which is the easiest part. But um, oh, the, the other thing that I don't know why I, I remember mentioning was that the change of judge as a matter of right has been suspended till the end of the year. So everybody's stuck with whoever they're stuck with. Litigants don't get to change judges. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, it helps. It helps. Thank you. It's just something that I've been talking a lot about with with both defense counsel and county attorney's office. Right. Um, it, it is. Um, I mean, it's very challenging. I mean, I I do think that if, if you were to do the trials on video, I think the best way to do it would be to have them at least in the building. You would make sure that they're there, you would make sure that they have what they need to have. You know, I think that that would be a better way to have some some control over them. Thank right, thanks everyone for participating today. I am going to update the materials in Hightail because uh, uh, what what I'm going to do because we did this on GoToMeeting, there is going to later today. GoToMeeting is going to email me a link to the video of today's presentation. So I'm going to update the materials so that you have a hot link to the actual video of this. This will also be uploaded as an audio podcast. Uh, we are going to record a new podcast on the third amended best practice on evictions on Wednesday, so that'll be up either late Wednesday or on Thursday. And uh, when, I know we're gonna get questions about when is there gonna be a fourth amended podcast. Well, if and when Congress does something about uh, uh, the uh, extending the eviction moratorium or imposing a new one, then I'm sure we'll have to rewrite the best practice at that point. Uh, but uh, until then, we're, we're standing pat with a third amended. Uh, so again, thank you everyone. If you do want co-chat for our pro tems, go ahead and send that in to Esther and have a good day. Bye, Charlie. Bye-bye. Thank you all.